1: Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of Chips, a soccer podcast from Vice Sports. I am Aaron Gordon, and it is a much nicer day out in Brooklyn today than the last time we recorded when it was gross. I hate like days old snow. When it's on the ground and like it's, it's that gross city snow that's like kind of brown from all the exhaust and I don't know. Anyways, so we're at the gross snow stage of the post-snowstorm. Joining me on the line is someone who is not in Brooklyn. He is in fact in London. Will, how are you doing today? I'm well. The weather here is much the same as it was last week, sort of. Dark and wet. Weather doesn't really, like, change in London, if I remember correctly. Like, I mean, obviously, season to season it does, but, like, once you get in a season, it's basically just that for, like, months, right? Uh,
0: yeah, no, it's basically just been miserable rain for, like, two, three, four, maybe four weeks. I'm losing track of time. You're right, There, are, there's no way to... Like, even tell what day it is because, yeah, they all just blend into one.
1: That's what I remember from when I lived there. F- or, you know, I studied abroad there for like three months, and that was basically like how I remember it. Like, it was just like you would lose track of time because every day would just be exactly the same uh, weather wise, and it would give you no indication as to like the amount of time passing.
0: Yeah, and then they're also the same in terms of content. I just, you know, show up to Vice and write some articles, and there's pretty much nothing to texture one sort of unit of existence from another. So, yeah, this is a pressing start to the
1: podcast. Ain't no party like a content party, because a content party don't stop. (laughs) All right, there is some actual soccer stuff we're going to talk about today. Big news today, Will, for some people at least. FIFA has officially announced that... The World Cup will officially be expanding, officially, to 48 teams. So that's 16 more teams than the 32-team World Cup. Everyone's talking about this. It's obviously the biggest story of the day. Will, do you care at all about this?
0: Well, actually, I've changed my mind on this. When you and I, very briefly, before the podcast, spoke about this, I suggested that I didn't care and was very bored about the entire debate and the whole idea of it was quite tedious. But actually, I've changed my mind. I think I am interested, so let's talk about it.
1: Whoa, seat of the pants flying, let's do it. I'm a fan of this improvisation. This is gonna be more of jazz than uh, classical music, so uh, let's, let's go for it. Will, you care about this now. Why do you care about it now?
0: Well, I've been thinking about the rhetoric surrounding
1: it, and that is what interests me, basically. Like, I
0: like the fact that Infantino suggested it will be more inclusive. Because I actually think that's a bit like misleading in a way. I think that although obviously there'll be more teams involved... And you know we all know that I'm not going to get into the details of... Who gets knocked out when and all that nonsense right now. But actually having looked at the figures and stuff... They're, they're estimating that although it'll generate about 521 million more in profit for FIFA... That it will cost a hell of a lot more for the hosting country. And that's made me think that actually... Less developed countries or less economically developed countries are gonna to struggle to host it even more than they already do and it's been it's been pretty economically disastrous for some places that have hosted the world cup uh and that's made me think that actually it's not very inclusive because basically unless you have like a ridiculous amount of money to throw at it now you're gonna to struggle to host it, so yeah, more teams but uh, potentially less places that can actually experience a world cup so yeah. Fuck you, FIFA. Basically,
1: yeah. A Wall Street Journal article on this yesterday alluded to this point. They said, or I, I shouldn't say alluded; they directly <laughs> mentioned it. Uh, it was just one throwaway <laughs> line in the article where they said FIFA projects that it will make hosting the World Cup about ten percent more expensive, which is a, that's a lot of money. I mean, so Brazil spent. God, I can't. I can't remember the money off. I can't remember the amount off the top of my head, but it was. It was many billions of dollars it was in the tens of billions of dollars i want to say it was 12 billion if the last i remember but I, that that's that could be wrong but it was it was definitely over 10 billion dollars so if you say 10% more expensive that's another billion dollars that seems that's not a trivial amount of money and to your point about um it making it less inclusive to host there are kind of a couple of of strands to go off here i mean on, on the one hand That could almost be a good thing because it could further dissuade countries that can't afford to host not to do it. Um, And and I think in general, FIFA needs to have a bit of a reckoning about who hosts tournaments and under what conditions they do so. And it certainly looks like the next several tournaments to be awarded are going to go to countries that can more or less easily afford them, like... uh, 2026 is the next one going to be awarded, and 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 some combination of US, maybe including Mexico and Canada for like a joint North America bid, seem to be the front runners at the moment. The UK or yeah, the UK seems to be the front runner for um, 2030 to have like the hundredth anniversary of the World Cup. So like, I think at least in the near future, it doesn't look like any developed countries are going to be launching seriously contested bids. Um, but down the line, I mean, your, your point is well taken. This is going to make hosting games, hosting the World Cup more expensive. It's already tremendously—it seems FIFA's going in the wrong direction here. They should be trying to make hosting less expensive, but instead they're going in the complete opposite direction.
0: Yeah, I think I think the issue really is that, like, even with—I mean, you know, obviously a different tournament, but France with Euro 2016— even, like, the French government was saying this is essentially ludicrously expensive now and, you know, these tournaments are just getting more and more expensive and even for, like, developed countries in Western Europe, they're really difficult to host and it's too much money and it's too much of a burden on the taxpayer. And, like, that's, you know, that's basically a developed country saying, like, football tournaments have become too expensive. Well, ramping up the, cup, the cost of hosting a World Cup, you know, all I... I mean, it, it's already basically, you know... Um, ruling out any hosting by sort of a less developed country and or like like unless you say like unless they go into loads of debt or do something ridiculous economically to host it just for the prestige of it and then actually i think we're probably coming to the point where this you know hosting a world cup is becoming less and less appealing to a lot of developed western countries so basically we're gonna if it continues to get more and more expensive and they continue to do these ridiculous things for the sake of their own profit we're going to basically get to a situation where the countries that can afford to host the World Cup are the USA and then like countries with vast you know ridiculously um appropriated like natural wealth so like Qatar and Russia and you know yeah basically I don't think that's very romantic I don't think that's good for football and yeah just the whole thing's bollocks basically
1: let's narrow down the terms a little bit here though because like I, you know you brought this up within the within the context of Inclusivity of the World Cup, and I'm not really sure this changes—like, uh, the hosting question specifically changes that much from this announcement. Like, a 10% increase is not trivial, but I also don't think it really changes the math for many countries involved. Like, I don't think—I don't think there are many countries in the world, if any, that were considering bidding last week— and now that they know they'll have to accommodate a ten percent cost increase, are thinking twice about it. I think if you could afford the World Cup with thirty-two teams, you can afford it with forty-eight. And if and if you couldn't, it doesn't change anything. Like I'm so I, I mean, isn't it better, if, as far as inclusivity goes, with global inclusivity, to um, to at least include more teams in the tournament, even though a lot of countries can't host it themselves
0: um well i mean potentially like i don't i have no issue particularly with more teams being involved or the new format that's been proposed or anything like that but you know i do i i personally think a 10 percent rising cost is going to be like a serious issue and i also think that there are a lot of countries who basically can't afford it but go for it anyway i mean like if you look at the economic state of brazil now it's pretty disastrous and you know Hey, who knows how it benefited benefited South Africa? Really, I don't think it's really benefited them economically. So there are a lot of places that already bid for World Cups can't really afford them, and like just deal with the economic like burden anyway. I think a ten percent increase is like going to be pretty disastrous if those people continue to, uh, or if those countries continue to bid. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, again, it's nice. It's nice to think that we'll have more. You know. Sides involved, and there potentially be more underdog stories, a la kind of Iceland and Wales at Euro 2016. But you know, I don't know whether that's a, co- a price worth paying for, like the actual proper economic burden that it has on countries. Because you know football's one thing, but like football's entertainment, isn't it? And an economic burden affects a country in like a, you know thousands of different ways. So it feels a little bit like it puts the football into context. Really, the fact that there's going to be a ten percent increase for the hosting country.
1: Yeah, I, I I agree with your with your general point for sure that. I wish this was getting more attention in the press. Like, everyone's talking about how it will change the tournament format, whether it's going to dilute the tournament, you know. Even some discussion about um, how it will change the qualification process. Those are all things worth talking about, but they they aren't – they pale in comparison to the importance of, like, how this changes the actual economics of the tournament. And nobody really seems to care about it. Like, you know, not to – I give give the Wall Street Journal credit for highlighting it in their article, for actually mentioning it, but it was literally just one sentence with actually no, like, analysis on what that means or where the figure comes from or, you know, how it might affect, you know. And maybe they just didn't have time to write about it. I mean, who knows? But it definitely seems like this isn't getting talked about enough. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Thank you. Thank you for changing your mind and and deciding you care about something for once. (laughs) It's okay, yeah. No, it's it's not
0: often I do that. But in this case, I've decided that, you know what, it's time to make a stand on this podcast.
1: Yes. The chip stand, of course. Um, let's let's so World Cup out of the way. I'm sure I'm sure you will hear about this little known tournament in the future. Um so we'll move on to something else. Uh last weekend uh there was no Premier League action because it was time for the FA Cup. Uh third round of the FA Cup if I recall correctly. Uh which means that I didn't watch much soccer because I don't really care about the FA Cup. Like I started watching soccer on my own uh, with no real proper guidance from a proper football man. Uh, in And I was just, you know, an Amer- <laughs> dumb American watching soccer. And I was like, what the fuck is this FA Cup thing? I don't get how this works. This makes no sense. Why are all these good teams playing all these bad teams? I'm just going to go do something else. So, anyways, I don't really care about the FA Cup, and I mentioned that to you uh, some what was it like a week and a a week ago or so, and you were like, "Oh no, the FA Cup's great." And then we were like, "Okay, well, now I guess we know what we're going to talk about on chips." So, uh, Will, defend your ridiculously dumb tournament, please.
0: Well, that's quite a quite sort of pointed start, I suppose. But um, (laughs) I yeah, I I think the FA Cup's quite a neglected tournament at the moment. Like if you look at what sort of what happened to Bournemouth, Stoke, and West Brom, I think that's quite indicative of of how the FA Cup is treated. As in, there are a lot of sides that are essentially quite safe in the middle of like the mid-table of the Premier League who won't take the FA Cup that seriously, which is like a massive cultural change in England. Because in say like the 80s or the 90s, sides you know who who had no real chance of winning the league, say, or like a European trophy. Would really go for the FA Cup. It would really matter to them. So there's kind of, there's definitely I think with the money that's coming to the Premier League and the you know the just the, the general financial incentive to stay there, people are ultra ultra conservative about um, you know distracting from the Premier League in any way. So they basically just want Premier League safety and they're not really bothered about silverware. That's I mean that's that's the club I'm speaking about there because actually fans really do care and that's kind of why it's a bit of a shame really because fans are definitely um, invested in the FA Cup. But I mean. I suppose, despite that, the FA Cup still has this like residual incul- like cultural importance here, I think. And yeah, you know, like especially third round, which was the round that was just this weekend, that's um, like quite culturally iconic because, as you say, you get you get like, you know, sides from the Premier League playing sides from, you know, the potentially the Conference, and like I think, say Ipswich, who are a Championship side, played Lincoln who are a conference side um, this weekend and it was like a two-all draw. There's kind of stuff like that. It's exciting. It's just like quite chaotic. And so I, I can get what you're saying about thinking, God, I don't like, what is this? You know, not really understanding it when you are first, like why anyone's doing it when you are first kind of getting into football. But I think it's the chaos that is what's so enjoyable about it. Like it's fun to see like, you know, high, pay, high paid pros from the Premier League turn up on, like, a terrible, terrible pitch in, like, Sutton or Cambridge or wherever, you know, some regional place in the UK, and then just, like, watch them scrap it out with a load of, like, brickies and builders and plumbers and stuff for 40, you know, 90 minutes. That's uh, that's fun, I think. So, yeah, there's, you know, it's kind of that. The chaos element of it is what's what you're meant to enjoy. So, yeah, embrace the chaos, Aaron.
1: Okay, so, like, when I was introduced to the FA Cup, like... Basically, the only thing I heard about it is the tagline, like, the magic of the FA Cup. And, like, I heard it from people who actually believe, like, in that. Like, they didn't use the phrase ironically. And I never understood (laughs) what that is supposed to mean. Like, it's, you know, it's like... I don't know. You're never supposed to get explained that something is great before you experience the greatness yourself. Because obviously then you're going to watch it or experience it and you're going to be like, "What? this is not what I had in my mind. And I just never understood like what the phrase, the magic of the FA Cup, is supposed to be about. Can you help me understand that? Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a lot of like FA Cup cliches are sort of an industry in themselves within British journalism. So, I mean... Like, the magic of the FA Cup is the greatest cliche of all. And then, you know, you get things like an FA Cup giant killing, a David and Goliath scenario. Like, someone will call a small side the minnows. You know, there's that kind of... Like, there's a lot of cliches that are invested in the FA Cup. But I suppose, like, yeah, the magic of the Cup is that... you know, a bit of a fallacy in that, yeah, it's great. I mean, basically, the Magic of the Cup is meant to sum up when, aside from, you know, the Conference North somehow beats aside from the Championship or, you know, whatever. Or, you know, a, even a Championship side beats a Premier League side. That, you know, it's all about the upsets, basically. But then, actually, you get games that are just so incredibly unmagical. Like, you know, at the weekend, Arsenal-Creston was a good example, I think. In that the underdog Preston, you know, scored, played really well in the first half. It looked like it was a prime FA Cup upset, and the magic levels were kind of Harry Potter esque. You know, they were they were flying. There was a lot of it was Gandalf magic going on there. And then, uh, yeah, then Arsenal just very routinely and boringly and sort of quite harshly just yeah just beat them in the second half. So it's pretty unmagical. It's, that's like the industrial really the industry of the FA Cup. So um, yeah, I mean it's an old cliche, and sometimes you do get magical occurrences, and other times you get extremely mundane occurrences, like Arsenal just you know quite tediously scraping past Preston, and then
1: you get like Manchester United just absolutely shellacking Reading. Like I mean that wasn't enjoyable to experience. Maybe like if you were maybe if you were a Manchester United fan, I don't know. But it's like even if you're a United fan, like okay, so you kick the crap out of a team that is so much your inferior in every possible way. Like, how can you really derive much pleasure from that? It's like watching, like, the school bully beat up a dog or something. Like, it's just not... It's like, you you just feel gross watching Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I agree. In fact, that's another good example, probably even better than Arsenal-Preston, in that there was literally nothing for Reading fans to enjoy in that. It was like they turned up, they were just soundly beaten from beginning to end, and then they went home. So, yeah, I mean that's you know not not the magic of the FA Cup that's kind of the precise opposite but then like you know you see Millwall beating Bournemouth 3-0 that's something that they'll remember you know Millwall fans will remember for a long time that you know there's a kernel of there's a kernel of something special there I guess and you know especially I think what really what's really remembered um, at clubs but also in kind of UK football cup like folklore more generally is when people go on FA Cup runs so you know a small side ends up getting to the you know Semi-finals or the quarter-finals—it doesn't really matter how far you go, as long as you you know get a few scalps as another cliche uh, along the way. And I think you know, say that Millwall now ran to the quarter-finals—that would be prime magic of the FA Cup. There would be there would be magic, magical happenings going on everywhere in Britain if that occurred. So you know, that's what you want to look out for—a good cup run—and that hopefully
1: will get you in the FA Cup. I mean, this sounds basically like. You know, are like the NCAA tournament, like the the college basketball tournament we have in March. It sounds like you be, it, like the principles sound very similar in that, like you have you have you know your your gigantic you know teams that have all the best players, and in the first round they meet up with a bunch of shitty, terrible teams. And they almost always beat them, but there are, like, the few exceptions. And sometimes you get a team that nobody even thought about that ends up going on, like, you know, it ends up making it to, like, the Sweet 16 or even, like, the Final Four. And then that's the shit people remember for all of time. And I get that. Like, I, I get people get excited to see those things. But I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm, like, a thoroughly depressing human being that I just think, like, of course, that's going to happen. Like you just play like if you just it's just basic statistics that you know, every once in a while you're going to get some team that isn't ranked highly that does well. Like that's just how statistics work. And it really has nothing to do with the team itself. It's just kind of like odds and and just the way that randomness exists in our world. So like I'm probably the most skeptical person in the world when it comes to like actually just sitting back and being like, oh, FA Cup magic, it's so wonderful. But the tournament just seems so broken to me. Like back to getting back to the FA Cup. Like the four the just the, the incentives at play for so many of the teams and the format and how it comes up in the league season. Like it just seems so broken to actually elicit matchups of multiple teams that care about winning.
0: Yeah, I mean there you know, there are upsides to it. I mean, firstly that was very depressing, your rant about statistics there. I mean yeah, you can, I mean, you can pretty much reduce anything in the world to just basic mathematics, but, like... Uh,
1: I know. It's just, like... I, I know. And, like, I feel awful saying it, but it's also, like... I don't want to say it's how I view the world, because it's obviously not how I view the world. But it also just, like, makes me... I don't know. It also just... I get like depressed, not depressed, but yeah, I get depressed when I see people just like completely ignoring it too. Like when, like when people, you know, especially sports writers like derive some significant grand meaning from like, uh, you know, a, like in 2006 when George Mason like went to the Final Four in the NCAA tournament, which is basically like a long cup run. The principle is exactly the same. And, Everyone was like, what can we learn about this team, like, how they represent, like, plucky underdogs, and I was like, this tournament has been played for, for, like, 50 years, and every once in a while a team does this just because that's going to happen sometimes, it's not some grand cosmic event we need to dissect, like, I'm all fine with, like, enjoying it, like, seriously enjoy it like but don't try and make it into like something bigger to like interpret and that's what really yeah this is
0: the same logic that like if someone said i love you you'd be like love isn't actually a real thing it's a concept we've made up and actually this is just a series of emotions that you're feeling in the synapses of your brain like, you know, yeah, I agree with you, but also, why are you destroying everything that's beautiful in the
1: world, Actually, actually it's statistically likely that you would find someone to love in your lifetime. So, you know, <laughs> don't, don't give me that shit.
0: In fairness, there are, like, as I said before, there are some good things about it. Namely, that um, it's great when small sides get a replay, even just a replay, you know, so sort a of draw, like a nil-nil draw, um, and then go to a big ground and that... Is a huge kind of a financial windfall for them. So say like um, how Plymouth uh, drew nil-nil with Liverpool. That's obviously a, like actually you know you say like it's a bit crazy in terms of how competi- you know how the competitive element of it works. But that's actually brilliant for Plymouth. Like they're gonna you know earn millions potentially from that being televised and from the gay. So um, yeah, you know that's a good thing and it spreads the money around. And you know big sides even if they just get a draw with a small side and then they sweep them away in the second leg there are advantages of that to the small side so maybe that's something that doesn't get seen overseas quite as much but like is a, it kind of features in the english understanding of the fa cup you know there's there's definitely a financial element to it which is you know quite egalitarian and i think that's probably something to appreciate about it independently so should those t- smaller teams be playing for a draw? Well, no, they should obviously be, <laughs> be playing for a win. But like, if they get a draw or happen to get a draw, then that is also great. And I'm sure some of them do play for a draw because, as I said, there's, there are you know potentially huge um, or relatively huge for them financial rewards at stake. But yeah, I mean, you know, it might not seem that romantic, but I guess for a club like Plymouth, if they get a big windfall from that, that could really help them in the future. So. You know, there's there's some there's some proper statistical, mathematical, financial romance for you there, Aaron. So I hope you I hope you enjoy that.
1: So wait, if the magic of the FA Cup is that like Plymouth gets a replay at home and gets Liverpool to come there and they make like a million dollars off, like is that the magic of the FA Cup? Like, get the magic of the of the replay? Well,
0: I suppose that is one element of the magic. As I said, mainly upsets of the magic and copper but no, you're right. There is an element of the magic which
1: is purely financial. All right. As there should be with all magic. <laughs> the economics of Harry Potter. I'm I'm I wonder if anyone's written that book yet. I'm sure someone has. Like something about how like I don't know, how like Harry Potter's incentives to kill Voldemort or something, I don't know. I haven't I haven't read Harry Potter since I was like a teenager, so I can't actually make a make a cogent reference here. But. Yeah, I mean like
0: that satire
1: fell flat on lack of Harry Potter knowledge. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's important to know something about what you're satirizing. Amazing. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I think I think it's clear I will never actually understand the magic of the FA Cup and just have to, like, move on with my life. Um, my magic-free, depressing, statistically significant sample-sized life. Speaking of financials and statistics and... Such exciting matters. There are some like high profile contract negotiations, renegotiations, you could say, going on in the EPL right now, specifically at Arsenal, which I think are actually kind of interesting. I, I, I don't think we'll get into finances, you know, nuts and bolts of that stuff too much here on chips, but we both I think are interested in kind of like how these contract renegotiations are going because they bring in a lot of different elements at play, Um, specifically Arsenal's two best players, Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez. Their contracts expire in 2018. So this summer will be their last summer window under contract at Arsenal, which is always a big deal because obviously Arsenal don't want to let them go for free. You know, if they can't renegotiate new terms, they want to sell them for money, and so um, as one typically does when they sell things, there's a lot going on in these negotiations because this week Ozil said that a big factor in him signing a new contract at Arsenal is Wenger's future because he doesn't want to be at the team under a different manager potentially because Wenger was one of the big reasons why he wanted to come to Arsenal. Makes perfect sense to me. Sanchez is the motives at play are a bit less clear. It seems like that one's mostly about salary, as is Ozil's too, I think. But as with these things, they tend to be rather opaque. We don't know exactly what's going on. There are a lot of rumors and kind of winks and nods put out there by agents. And nobody really knows except those involved with the team, but you kind of get bits and pieces. So Will, with that kind of background in there, as a fan or at least an observer of the sport, who, you know, generally enjoys soccer, like, how much do you pay attention to these types of rumors and things, and do you actually care, or do you just, like, want to know when they sign a new contract, and other than that, you just, like, don't really care about the details? No, I find, I find it quite interesting. I mean, I find the psychology
0: of it interesting. I'm quite fascinated with how much an agent has... You know, the, the, basically the various strategies available to an agent and how much influence they have over a transfer... You know, sorry, not transfer, but... Um, well, potential transfer, but a contract renegotiation. In that, you know, when you're saying it's opaque, I mean, it basically is completely opaque, I would say. And most of the information fed to journalists and the press through sources is probably... I mean, I can't imagine... I can't see any um, advantage, really, of a club leaking that information. So it's basically... In my opinion, most of it is linked by age, uh, is uh, leaked by agents, and that that's kind of pretty interesting. You know, the fact that it doesn't actually matter whether the details of a story are true or like whether how, how accurate a story is in terms of who's neg- who's demanding what, and you know what wages are being demanded. But it just matters that the story exists because then the sort the story itself becomes like negotiating capital, in that you know agents use the story to then go back to the club and, you know, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling cycle or a kind of self-perpetuating cycle. So an agent leaks a story, the story gets huge public interest, like, say, fans get, you know, a huge amount of opinion comes forth and a lot of fans get annoyed or a lot of fans, you know, uh, feel various things and say various things and it's kind of like a bit of a public relations storm for the club, you know, whether good or bad. And then it all comes back to the club and helps the agent in the negotiation. And like, I think that that's... a uh, It's kind of like a reflection of politics, I guess. It's a very interesting kind of, just a very interesting process in the way that, you know, agents say one thing and do another and clubs say one thing and do another. And there's just a, it's kind of like, it's like chess, I guess. There's there's just a huge amount of, um, there's a huge amount of variables and a huge amount of moves and kind of stratagems available to both club and agent and possibly player. So yeah, it's a it's a very interesting process. I think it is it is interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, how much how much is it reported on in the US, and how much do people, you know, is it as big as it is here? Because I know here it's a, you know, basically reporting on contract negotiation is like an industry within the industry of journalism. It's like an industry within an industry.
1: So. I mean, is that the same in the U.S.? Are people as, as interested in the kind of nitty-gritty of it? Yeah, I think, like, you know, obviously the scale is totally different just because, you know, I, just because, you know, fewer people pay attention to soccer here. But it it, it does have, like, a, its, you know, reported spheres. I would say the scale proportionally is similar. Um, people do care about it, and I agree with you like the the it 's not so much the the details itself but the meta element going on that 's way more interesting and just interpreting you know the moves going on there um the 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 interesting thing about the way contracts are reported on in the press and just handled g- generally in European soccer. That's really interesting to me is how it differs from U.S. sports, and obviously the economics of the two are totally different, like the economic structures. So that aside, basically in U.S. sports, you hear tiny blips and rumblings, but generally speaking, you hear about a contract extension or somebody being released or someone being signed. There's... Far less rumors about what a player currently under contract is doing. It's pretty much seen as a declaration of war if an agent like leaks something uh, about current negotiations or during a player's current contract that he's like looking for something from the team. That if you see an, a story about that in the press, you can you can be pretty certain that that player is not going to be playing for the team he's currently playing for in the future. It probably means he's trying to get a story out there to signal to other teams or to the team itself that they are very unhappy with the way current contract negotiations are going. Whereas when I look at, say, like the way the EPL is reported on— You hear players, you know, talking about, or agents leaking stories about players' contract extensions all the time, and then they re-sign with the same team. So it's like, the dynamics are totally different, and I find it way more interesting the way you can, like, interpret or or, uh, kind of play the game along with the the players and the agents and the teams in, in European soccer.
0: Yeah, I mean, agents have, like, massive, massive power in European football, obviously, I mean, and in the Premier League, so you know in a way kind of what you're saying about the fact that you know if if an if an agent leaks that much information in America it might be you know in another sport in America that would be a declaration of war i mean in a way it kind of should be i mean that's really it is underhand and it is kind of sly and it's using all your different like machinations and you know different kind of ploys to to get you know to to kind of to kind of reach your end game and it is you know it is it is kind of underhand and i think you know, it's something that paints agents in a bad in a bad light here, definitely. But um, you know, it's, it's I was I was thinking it's interesting to compare what goes on with current contract negotiations with what you know you hear kind of historically goes on at clubs, so like or went on at clubs. So in the nineties, you know, say I mean, like say at Arsenal, there are lots of stories of like Tony Adams, who was then you know the captain. You know, the players would say to him. We think we all we're all owed like a pay rise, you know. Go and speak to George Graham, who was the manager at the time. Go and speak to him about it, and you know, get us all a pay rise because you're the captain. Almost like a like he was the head of a union or something. And then you know he would go and speak to George Graham, and like in the apocryphal story, he comes out and he's got a pay rise that no one else does. <laughs> but like that kind of that kind of apocryphal story is quite sweet in a way, and quite like you know it's kind of like a world without agents, a world in which players were almost kind of negotiating things just on respect and mutual understanding and like you know whether or not that world worked or not i don't know whether or not it was fair i don't know but you know that's kind of quite a romantic view of the past but nonetheless a reflection of i think how things used to go on and now if you look at what's going on at arsenal with mesut özil and alexis sanchez like it really is a it's a public relations war basically because You know the club releases certain amounts of information. Arsene Wenger says certain things. Then you hear a report that like an unnamed Chinese club is going to offer you know, you know Alexis Sanchez four hundred thousand pounds a week or something, or you know some ridiculous amount to go and play in China. And you think is that actually true, or has an agent just released that to use the story that they've released as a bargaining chip against the club? It's amazing. Like I, I genuinely think. The, the whole thing is so Machiavellian now, and so you know there are, there are kind of layers of complexity within layers, and it 's just really really like agents have have kind of created this whole core kind of drama like a you know i don 't know it's like it 's like game of Thrones basically but um yeah i, I don 't think it used to be that way, and it 's changed drastically over twenty years, and you know definitely the power of agents in European football and premier League football has has rocketed, and you know probably whether or not we enjoy the you know the contract sagas and transfer
1: sagas or whatever probably to the detriment of the game yeah it's it's funny to me how they like as much as they all differ they also seem to follow a familiar pattern like it becomes clear that the player and the team are not on the same page about the next contract then someone somewhere will get a rumor started that some other team is preparing a bid or has bid for that player that drastically increases their wages. And then like sometimes the Asian is caught with his pants down because that team then says, like, no, we never bid on that guy. That's ridiculous. And then you're like, wait, is that team lying because they don't want to piss off the other team who they might actually do business with in the future? And the agent is still, like, trying to make it sound like the bid was really true. Or maybe they use just, like, the, you know, now the favorite, like you say, is just, like, an unnamed Chinese club that bid, like, half a country's GDP on the player. And you're just like... And it's just – it's all this misinformation. You know, it's like the classic Churchillian, you know, the truth must be surrounded, the bodyguard of lives situation. So it's impossible to know what's actually going on. And that almost makes it more fun because you can just kind of invent your own reality and it doesn't really matter because there's no way to know what's really happening or not. I don't know. And it's like well, – last question for you on this subject. Um, in the US, there's this horrible, horrible tendency of fans to – almost invariably side with the team or management in these situations like if a player wants more money it's always why is that player being so greedy like he plays a game for a living doesn't he know that he should take his massive amount of wealth and be happy with it um is that is that true is that how people react in the in the uk as well if you were to speak to some Arsenal
0: fans about what they think about Ozil and Sanchez's contract negotiation I think the majority would kind of lean towards back the club but only really because they want to see the best team possible put out for Arsenal so it's not I can see what you're saying it kind of looks a little bit you know it's just kind of like employee versus employer kind of or like you know workers versus bosses kind of you know kind of coloring to it but I think fans probably fall on the side of the employee in other words the club just because they care about the club and the player is only you know they only support the player so long as they play for their club but, like, yeah, no, it's quite... I mean, like, for me personally, it is quite a confusing one because it's kind of, like... I think it's it's very difficult to feel, like, a kind of um, impulsive or, like, natural sympathy towards, say, Mr. Ozil, who's already on, a you know, pretty vast wages, you know, more than I will earn in my entire life or you will earn in your entire life. And, um, you know, and now one that's, like, loads more. And it's kind of... It, it just naturally is quite difficult to almost sympathise with that. But then also... You know, looking back at the history of football and, you know, how when players unionised and, you know, kind of collectively bargained for wages and stuff in, a, I guess, in the 60s and 70s and then onwards, you know, they were not... They were it, they were basically employees and they were they were basically exploited by the clubs for, you know, for huge profit back then. And, yeah, I mean, the process is in many ways a good one. The employee now has a lot more money. A lot, a lot of the guys who play football are from... You know, not not from like wealthy backgrounds, but poor backgrounds. So in a way, it's great that they're set for life and they have a huge amount of cash. Um, but yeah, no, I'll just on a natural kind of. There's almost like just just some instinctive part of me that actually does, as you say, kind of just back the club because you you just feel that there's this individual with all this money and is asking for more money and it's kind of. I know, I know it is terrible and like you said, it's terrible. But I don't know, I don't know why. There's just an instinctive kind of but he's on 140 grand, you know, I don't know. It just, it does pop into the mind. It's impossible to dispel it, even though in some ways, intellectually, I'm on the side of the players, if you see what I mean. I
1: mean, I see what you mean, but I also want to slap you in the face for it. Like, that's, oh God. And there's Why are you like sympathizing with this team that makes billions of d- of pounds or dollars every year and is trying to like... You know, oh, but we can't pay this player the, you know a wage that's comparable with other players of his talent. You know, it's like, I don't, it, like, the number is almost inconsequential to me because I can sympathize with an employee who sees other people at his level, performing at his level, and yet he is vastly... Uh, he's compensated at a at a at a level far below that. Like I think it's I think the number is almost inconsequential. Like I mean, studies have shown over and over that people compare themselves to other people at their level, and that happiness is not really like an absolute thing. Like I don't think you know, I don't go around thinking I'm so much better off than like someone in a third world country. Therefore, I shouldn't complain about my wage. And the same way, I don't think Mesut walks around being like, well, you know, I make a lot more than most people, so I should just be happy with it. Like, no, he looks, he walks around and looks at, you know, the fact that he is one of the most skilled people in the world at what he does. And yet, his cohorts, you know, some, the people who he's most comparable to make, you know, maybe double his wages, a little less than double, like, I, that's easy to sympathize with. I don't see why it's so hard to, like, you know, to, to, to uh, uh, find that, you know, appeal, uh, an appealing point of view, even though uh, the, the amount we're talking about is so much higher.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, as I said, intellectually, I agree with what you're saying there's just an instinctive kind of thing I think maybe the issue more with me and maybe why my instinct kind of why I'm struggling to sympathize with players overtly although as you say I am very much aware that the clubs have vast resources and are not like overly strained you know it's not like they're you know they're on the breadline and the players are like milking them for everything they've got you know in some ways I guess it's it's the other way around but you know there's a I think basically the key thing here is that with the agent's involvement as well and with the money that gets siphoned off any new contract or any transfer or anything like that, you know, the player is not just, like, an individual who's thinking about their comparative worth or their market value or whatever. They are someone who has, like, quite a large structure of, you know, bureaucracy behind them and quite a few levels of, like you know there 's an agent and there are other people and there 's hangers on and all sorts of people who kind of whose um, motivation is to get that player to earn as much as possible and be as wealthy as possible and surround them with more and more wealth or you know more wealth that they can kind of siphon off or leech off essentially so the process is not quite as simple as like someone at you or I thinking, "Hey, this is my market value, and I want to pay rise. It's, you wonder how much a player is incentivized by the money. In other words, how much Messer Özil thinks I want, say, 300 grand a week, and how much his agent is saying to him, "I think you should be on this march, and I'm going to, like, wrangle that deal for you." So I guess I, I do see what you're saying. There are other elements to it, though, and there are other kind of layers beyond just like a player's market value. And I wonder whether they're what make me feel possibly a little less sympathetic as opposed to just like the market value of the player itself. I don't know. There's there's something in there that makes me feel instinctively like a little bit wary about, or not wary, but kind of a little bit ill-disposed towards, you know, the kind of, the renegotiation of massive, massive contracts to even more massive contracts. But, yeah, maybe that's... maybe. No, I mean, I I I understand
1: what you're saying. Like, agents, you know, not to paint agents with a broad stroke, but there are definitely many out there who are not necessarily after the player's best interest, right? They're just looking for a bigger cut for themselves. And, you know, they negotiate that in whatever way they think is is best for them. And the player turns out to be more of a commodity for them to exploit than anything else. I totally get that. There are certainly agents who behave that way. And it's hard to really know who is who um, without being, you know, in- involved in the process. Uh that being said, you know, agents do sometimes often, I don't know, somewhere in the middle, they occasionally serve an important purpose in that a lot of these players don't understand the mechanisms of, you know, contract negotiations and and market value and things like that. I mean, they 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 have a rudimentary understanding of them because they've spent their entire lives learning about soccer and performing soccer at the highest possible level and not learning about how to negotiate their own contracts. It's very it's a very, you know, difficult situation to really parse out. So I, I do understand where you're coming from there. I think that's probably as good of a place as any to kind of just leave it. You know, like, like we always say, it, it, you know, there's, it's somewhere in the middle.
0: You're right. There, there, there's definitely a role that agents play that is important. And as I said, you know, the old like Tony Adams anecdote, clearly that was not entirely a good way for contract renegotiation to work from the player's point of view so yeah it's you know, good for Tony Adams I guess, I guess yeah basically but I guess you, um, you're kind of relying on agents being you know in some ways ethical and representing their clients in an ethical way and I'm sure some do and then I'm sure that a lot of others don't and the, other, the people who don't are probably having a, a fairly negative economic effect on football as a whole I think but anyway I, I think you're right it is a middle ground
1: that about covers it for today. There's really not much else to talk about, to be honest. We got another EPL weekend coming up this weekend. Thank God. I just, ugh, if I have to, you know, if I have to go outside again, I don't know what, what I'll do. Actually, I didn't go outside at all last weekend. It was snowing, and I stayed inside in red and read and... Yeah, so I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm griping about. I'm gonna spend another weekend indoors, and it's gonna be fucking great. Uh, Will, do you have any final thoughts for the people out there? Have you written anything this week? Do you want to share? Have you done anything interesting? Do you have any kind thoughts for the good people of Chips Podcast?
0: Uh, no, I don't have any kind thoughts for them um, at all. But I have been writing some stuff. There's some stuff I've written. One thing coming up is uh, something on why football clubs are engaging directly with uh, transfer rumors. And it's just generally about clubs having a media watch, stuff like that, kind of engaging with the whole transfer rumor industry and what exactly that, how exactly that
1: benefits them basically and what, what that does for them. So yeah, read read that, read read my content. I've I've written a few things about the World Cup expansion, shorter things just about how qualifiers might be reworked so that they don't become a boring doldrum mess of two years of pointless games I've been working on some bigger things that hopefully um, I'll be able to talk about next week thank you for listening thank you for listening thank you for listening Uh, you can follow us on twitter at at chips podcast and you can email us questions comments concerns Han, uh, send us your post address so I can respond to you with a hand- letter. I've sent out a few, actually, so um, hopefully people will make those known to the public so we can share that. But yeah, you can re- email us chips at vicesports.com And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.